You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, she has the distinction of becoming the first female four-star general in the Army, and also... I know that this will be the highest ranking individual that we'll ever interview on the Hazard Ground podcast as she is four-star general, a.k.a. General, and Dunwoody, and she joins the podcast now. Ma'am, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, it certainly is an honor. I mean, listen, we've had other females on the podcast, and we are certainly excited to talk to you. The distinction of being the first female four-star general, the highest rank you can achieve in the Army, in the military, whatever you want to say, uh, certainly lends itself to, to being remarkable. But we want to get through how you got there, and we start the podcast out by asking, why did you join the military? Oh, that's a, always a great question. And uh those who know me know I come from a background with four generations of West Pointers in my family. Wow. My, yeah, my brother, my dad, his dad, and my great-grandfather were all West Pointers. Uh, and believe it or not, in the family of five, I was one of the few that had no interest in joining the military when I was growing up. I was going to be a phys ed teacher and a coach. And as far back as I can remember, I was a tomboy, and I loved sports, and I went to Cortland State in upstate New York, which was one of the top ten phys ed schools to become a, a coach and phys ed teacher. And so being in the military, just nothing that entered my mind. And so in my junior year in college, which was uh, 1974, right after the Vietnam War, my dad had just returned, the Army was trying to expand uh, the number of women that they had in its ranks, and they came up with this program that if you were qualified and you got accepted, that they would pay you $500 a month during your senior year in college. You graduated with a commission as a second lieutenant, and you had a two-year commitment. And I thought, wow. It's not a bad deal. <laughs> $500 back then, that was a lot of money. And so um, I remember... Just thinking about it, I said, hey, you know, this is too good to turn down. Plus, they were going to send me to airborne school. Can you imagine? They were going to teach me to jump out of airplanes. How exciting was that? And pay me. So I signed up uh, for two years and said, you know, I knew this was just going to be a short two-year detour in route to my coaching and phys ed profession. And uh, I remember when my first two years was up, telling my dad that, uh, you know, I really like being a soldier, and I like leading soldiers, and I'm going to do it as long as I can make a difference and that I enjoy what I'm doing. Ma'am, did you get a lot of pressure from your family once you got in to stay in or even to go in? Because, I mean, look, you talk about the lineage in your family. It's amazing. Your great-grandfather, your grandfather, your father, your brother, everybody had already served, and you didn't want to. I suppose that's fun. You know, obviously it's not, not the <laughs> end of the world, but that, that seems like a lot of familial pressure. Well, it wasn't, you know, back then, if you remember and you don't recall, there was the broken army, the hollow army, and it was unfunded, a lot of things that you see going on today, the drawdown after Vietnam. And so there wasn't, as, and back then when I joined, it was still the Women's Army Corps. So it wasn't as enticing as uh, what's open to women today. And I got no pressure. My mom, my dad, I came in from the actually best family in the world. My mom a devout Catholic, my dad a war hero from three wars. He's greatest generation in World War 
II, Korean War, and Vietnam, and a, and a war hero. But there's never any pressure. Uh, my brother had a little more pressure to go to West Point, uh, but it was open then and then than I would have had. And my older sister chose to go into the military, and she became the first female, a third female helicopter pilot in oh, the wow. military, and she really enjoyed it. And so I think having her and saying, hey, Sue, you know, how is it? Is it is it kind of an okay profession? Because uh, they were, you know, ROTC was getting thrown off campuses, a lot of things that you saw uh, as a dependent, but then now you're seeing translated into the political side. And, and she said, oh, I love it, you know. And so there was no pressure from my family to do that. They said, you can be anything you want to be with hard work and commitment. And so I never heard the word glass ceiling or, or glass barrier in my house. Well, I, I, I want to get to that because it's certainly obviously something that you had to break through. Uh, but you said after your two years that you decided you wanted to stay. You liked being a, a soldier. Was there anything in those two years, was there experience that you remember succinctly that said, hey, you know, this is really, I feel comfortable here. I, I can do this for a long time. Yeah, I was, um, my very first assignment was as a platoon leader at Fort Hill, Oklahoma. And, uh, and it was a non-divisional unit, but you know, what I realized joining the military in that first two years, especially with my very first platoon sergeant, first sergeant, sergeant first class Wendell Bowen, who didn't care about you being men or woman, he wanted to make you the best platoon leader in the United States Army, not the best female platoon leader. And so I learned some incredible uh, leadership lessons from him that stayed with me throughout my career. But I think what I realized is when I joined the military, having come from a values-based family, that I was really joining a values-based organization. And because less than 1% of the American population now ever serves in the military, most people don't realize that we are held to a higher standard. We take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's pretty heady stuff for an 18-year-old or anyone else for that matter. We're subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which governs our behavior in and out of uniform seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, we have standards for everything we do, you know, how you wear your uniform, how many push-ups you can do, how fast you can run, how, for us, how we wear hair, how many times you can hit a target. So in, in many cases, this the organization I had just joined was an extension of a values-based, standard-based family I had just left. But even with all those standards, what I learned, even in that very short time, but it continued throughout my career, was that the reason we're, and the people I admire most in leadership positions are those who are held to a higher standard and hold themselves to a higher standard and expect their subordinates to do the same. No, I mean, listen, for those who have been fans of this podcast, we, we often talk about the values and you know, what we're expected to uphold, because a lot of times, you know, we talk about combat scenarios, a lot of those values get called into question. You know, they're tough to uphold. It sounds easy, and we write them down on paper, and we put them out there for everybody to see, and it seems like an easy thing to follow, but that's not always the case. And a lot of times, it's that hard right over the easy wrong, um, or, you know, following the values is harder than it is to not follow them, and and we find that those conflicts are more often than people think. Boy, you nailed it there. And one of this, in my book, I talk about it in a higher standard. One of the very first lessons I learned from Sergeant First Class Wendell Bowen was to never walk by a mistake. And you talk about something that sounds easy. 
what he said, if you walk by a mistake, you just set a new lower standard. And if you think about it, it can be something as simple as watching a soldier shuffle down the sidewalk in uniform with his hands in his pockets or her hands in the pocket or not wearing her headgear. And they may not know. But if you walk by and allow that to happen, it's just become the new lower standard. And if you translate that into training or maintaining your combat gear for uh, to standard and you don't make your soldiers maintain their weapons to standard, in training, it can be a malfunction. In combat, it can result in a fatality. Yeah. But that translates not just to soldiers on the battlefield. It transforms to any profession. If you think about General Motors, if they had identified that ignition switch problem instead of trying to cover it up, think how many lives would have been saved. Think how many billions of dollars would have been saved. Think about... Volkswagen, if they had not tried to cover up the admission problem, somebody knew, people in the leadership knew how many, again, billions of dollars could have been saved. Arizona, the Department of Veterans Affairs, if they had been honest and someone reported the delays in taking care of our veterans instead of covering it up and using phony metrics to make them look good, how many people we could have helped instead of delayed their health care. So it's a, again, you said it, it breathes well because it's real easy to say, hey, that's not my problem, that's their problem, I'm just going to stay in my own lane. But standards are, it's a slippery slope. And as soon as you stop ignoring those standards or don't try to exceed those standards, then it is a slippery slope and high-performing organizations became mediocre organizations and, and then poor organizations. Ma'am, you spent nearly 40 years in the military, and I'm just looking over the list of your assignments, which obviously over the course of 40, I mean, you know, for those who don't understand the military, when you're in active duty, you could be moving posts every two to three years, moving assignments every two to three years, and physically moving locations that often. So uh, over the course of your career as you were going through it, uh, I kind of want to ask you more about being a female and growing up in a military that wasn't really very female-oriented throughout that time. Were, Were there any of the assignments, any places that you could remember where you ran into resistance because you were a female? Oh, a- absolutely. And, you know, when I came in, as I said, uh, we still had the Women's Army Corps. Then it was disestablished, and then we began the integration of women into the regular Army. And as I look back, for all of my cohorts, not just me, our biggest challenge, uh, and as fun and as a fun challenge, was to help with the integration of women into the regular army, to push back on on being the clerk or being the mess hall cook or being those traditional jobs. Go for those similar opportunities in my business, quartermaster. I now had the same career opportunities as my male counterparts, and you had to be recognized uh, and demonstrate that you're capable of doing that. And that was in every assignment that people do, I think, in the military, really do want the best athletes on their team. I mean, if the 82nd, I'll use that example, was one of the hardest ones for me for integration because it was very, back then, all-male, macho, 2% women in the entire division when I joined, and I was the only female field grade. And I thought, here, I'm coming out of CTSC, I've got two company commands under my belt, i got a master's degree in logistics, I'm a senior paratrooper because I did my master blaster over in Europe. You know, this is going to be wonderful. Now I get to join the All-American Division. Well, uh, this culture, this, you know, where where you got 2% and holding kind of attitude, 
that certainly women couldn't do this kind of business, jump out of airplanes, and, and why do we need them to do that in this, you know, combat arms board deployed outfit. And so uh, when I first got there, I was almost traded off to a, a non-divisional unit, and that went back and forth for a while. And then someone said, nope, done what he, you're going, she is going the 82nd. And then they really didn't know what to do with me. And they gave me probably, a, I wouldn't say one of those high-speed jobs. <laughs> um, I was a division property book officer, so I replaced a, a major who was non-selected colonel. While all my friends coming in, I see just, he got XO jobs, S3 jobs, you know, the um, career-enhancing high-speed jobs. And it probably was, and it was, the first time in my, and only time in my only career where I really thought about leaving the Army because I didn't think I was going to be allowed to make a difference and and be a great leader and have fun and enjoy what I was doing because I would be dismissed. But right. it, what I believe, and I tell people this all the time, you got to stay on the moral high ground because there's people that are advocates for you, and I'm sure you've had them in your career, there's people that aren't going to like you no matter what you do. And sometimes, hey, this man's army, we don't want you. And then there's people that are probably I call patronizers that say, hey, Mark, you're a really talented guy. And then behind your back, go, eh, you know, <laughs> so you don't know where ground truth is. And right. most importantly, it's not the kind of leader you work for. It's how you deal with those leaders. And my thing is stay on the moral high ground, exceed the standards, show them that you're professional, you're capable, don't lower your own standards or stoop to lower tactics. And you can make believers out of non-believers because people do want the best athletes on their team. And when you can outrun most people in the division, do more push-ups, people take notice and leaders give you that opportunity. And that's been my experience. And it worked for me. All right, let me fill in some background. The quartermaster corps essentially is just a, is, is a supply branch of the military. It's now actually for those who are more caught up and all lumped in together with logistics and transportation and maintenance and all the other things. But quartermaster is basically supply. And when General Dunwoody was referring to a property book officer versus an S three or an XO, S three and XO are jobs within a unit that actually, especially in the 82nd, would be a unit that could go into combat, whereas a property book officer basically is mounted in paperwork just tracking the equipment and everything that every unit has, and you're more stuck behind a desk than anything else. It's not a very demanding job as far as the things that we think in the military are concerned. And I think it's very well said that you bring the light. Every female I've ever run into, I don't think they ever want to be treated different and they don't want to be treated special. I think they just want the same opportunity as everybody else. They want the same chance to prove themselves. And that's a clear distinction. I think a lot of men have this preconceived notion in the military that, we, oh, now we have to do something different to welcome the female in and treat him with kick gloves. No, just treat him like everybody else and let the chips fall where they may. I think that's what most females are asking for. Right. When I uh, when I retired, I was not going to write a book. And everyone kept saying, hey, John Dunwood, when are you going to tell your story? When are you going to tell what happened you're the first one and biggest question i got was how did you fight and claw your way to the top in this all-male dominated army and that's when i knew i had to try to tell my story because my journey like many of the females you've met my journey was more about leadership than gender makes sense makes a lot of sense i mean because if you are a good leader that will rise above and it doesn't really matter 
you know, whether you're a male or a female, in our organization, and for those listening who are civilians, everybody knows this. If you are a good leader, that stands out and people gravitate towards you and they know it. They, they can just know the way you carry yourself, the way you speak, the way you dress, the, 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 the words that come out of your mouth. It, leadership just oozes out of certain people in our organization. And if you find those people, you're willing to go to bat for them and you'll do whatever they ask you to do. Come hell or high water on you, do your absolute best because we, everybody in this organization wants to follow a good leader. It's, it's the way the organization is set up. So uh, if you if you held to that mantra, then obviously, you know, it's much easier to work your way through the ranks as opposed to trying to use a good old boy system or uh, trying to, you know, find other ways to get to the top. Let me ask you about um, your time as you deployed to Saudi Arabia in Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, because, you know, you, know, it, you, you have said repeatedly that you wanted to be in line units. You wanted to be in units that were going to go somewhere and do something. When you finally got that opportunity, what did that mean to you? And kind of how was that whole experience as you look back on it? Yeah. Uh, I didn't, you know, people ask me when I went to jump school, God, do you want to go to ranger school? I said, no, I wanted to be airborne. I want to be a logistician, as you said, qualifying this as supply person, supports our combat arms on the front lines. But I wanted to be a logistician in peace and in war. I didn't want to have a job where all of a sudden your unit's deploying and they replace you with a guy because they don't trust you or have faith or confidence that you're going to be able to do your job as a logistician in, in a combat situation. So when I I moved to the supply book, non-menial job, real quick, got into operations as DISCOM, became an XO of the battalion there. with was this really exciting. And then for Desert Storm, by that time, I had landed one of the premier jobs in the division, which is the division parachute officer, which was originally a male-coded position, meaning no females could hold that position. And... Uh, you're responsible for all the support of every airborne operation, packing parachutes, rigging loads, all that kind of. It's really exciting and most, one of the most fun jobs I had when we deployed to a desert storm. So to have that opportunity, and there was some pushback originally that, well, we really don't need the division parachute officer over here yet because we're not doing airborne operations. And they kind of kind of work around it, but that didn't last long. It was minutes before they wanted to get into the planning and have a you know a secret staff supporting the division commander with potential airborne operations. How would we get the shoots over? How we do airborne training? How we bridge loads? Blah blah. And so the rest kind of became history. So it was opportunity to be able to go and and make a difference as a logistician and. Uh, one of my most premier assignments over there. When you kept running into assignment jobs that weren't coded for females, that were, were male-dominated jobs, and you got there, and there was always pushback, did you ever throw your hands in the air and just go, not again? Like, I mean, how many times are we going to go through this, folks? I'm qualified. <laughs> uh, you know, and again, if you just uh, – that was my most significant one. And then about the time, you know, when I landed, when I was – I had the privilege of becoming a battalion commander in the 82nd, by this time, and you'll find and yourself, we all go through that. Now your reputation is more, uh, is founded. You don't have that as lieutenant. You don't have that as captain, and you're growing it as a major. By the time you have a, you've been selected to command a battalion in the 82nd Overground Division, people know, even if they don't know you, know you have the credentials and the reputation. So there's a lot less throwing your hands in there. Now there are still 
doesn't mean that you've converted everyone in the world. That's never going to happen. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, everyone's on your team. It's just, that's not nature. We all have advocates. We all have, you know, enemies. We all have people that are not totally honest. So you just got to, you, you work through that. What The most important thing is that you be the leader role model. You don't lower yourself. You can you can make believers out of non-believers because you can exceed the standards and demonstrate that you're capable, you have the potential, and you care, and you can make a difference. And who doesn't want that kind of person on their team? Yeah, it makes I mean it makes total sense. Um, I, I think that you know just looking at your career and chronicling it uh, and, and understanding everything that you that you've gone through. You don't be able to move through the ranks that you do without, again, proving yourself constantly. But I just wonder, did you ever feel like you were always having to prove yourself, or did you just feel like, hey, I'm just doing the job that's handed in front of me? I always felt, and this is, goes back to my very early comment to my dad, I'm going to stay in as long as I can make a difference and I enjoy what I'm doing. And I really did stay in the Army one job at a time. And people find that hard to believe because many are planning how to become a general. How beca- I, That was never on my radar screen. When people said, hey, do you want to go do this? And I go, hmm, that sounds interesting, and I think I can do that and make a difference. And next job was this. And I go, wow, I'm, I'm honored. Go work for the Chief Staff of the Army. That sounds interesting, and I think I can make a difference. And then it was, you know, next job, this comes. Oh, God, what an honor to be able to be a brigade commander in the 10th Mountain. And that's how my career went, one job at a time. And I felt, and I tell civilians this all the time, I think the military has one of the best leader development programs. That's what we do in the military. We develop leaders. Civilians don't have that professional development, the no. time in history, the coaches, the mentors that we have. And they rarely take the time to do it within their own organizations, which is which is mind-boggling, I guess, because <laughs> I've gotten so much of it in the military, you know, because as in the National Guard, now I have a civilian job, and it's mind-boggling, the lack yeah. of internal development in organizations. It just blows yeah. my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm seeing it now in the civilian world, work on boards and the organizations, and you see how these things play out. And I, I say it's win-win. We can learn from your best business practices because you know how to run a business, and you can learn from how we develop leaders because that's what we do. You know, there really is a win-win relationship there if we could, you know, have those dialogues. Ma'am, you went to uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, and you deployed there as the first Corps Support Commander. What was that experience like? And when you, you know, OEF-1, again, that's the war in Afghanistan, you're there obviously at the very outset. So kind of what was that whole deal like for you? And, uh, you know, just going there in the support of the war on terror? I mean, there's there's a lot there when you're at that high of a level. Yeah, it was, you know, when 9-11 occurred, we were at station at Fort Bragg. And, of course, it shut down like every other place, uh, and it took, I lived an hour from my office, but it took me 10 hours to get home just wow. because <laughs> the roads and block and security and enhancements. And then, of course, the planning with special operations being there and, and a lot of them being my logistics friends, kind of tuned in what they were trying to do initially for their deployment and how we could be prepared to support them or back up. And, and back then, because they had personnel caps on the number of people that could be in theater, uh, Afghanistan read that, uh, it made it hard for leadership to want to bring in logistics folks that were going to consume the combat arm headcount. 
and so we came up with a, a plan because it was, you couldn't. We still didn't have total asset visibility, and for those, that's knowing where your stuff is, where it is in the pipeline, how much you have, where it's headed. We didn't have those tools yet. We were still using toilet paper and spreadsheets to try and track it. And you can Toyota, they know where every car is. Ford knows where every car is, but we didn't know where all this stuff was, whether it's coming in by train or rail, because we still didn't have the tools. And during that time, we started to fund the tools, get the tools, but that was in the embryonic stages. So we needed to have a command and control cell over there that could give the combat commanders visibility of where their stocks were, where their people were, start ordering winter gear in the summer so they had it when the winter was coming. And so we got approval to set our headquarters up in Uzbekistan, which didn't count within their headcount. Right. And so it had a C-17 capable airfield. It had rail coming in. Uh, and so we moved and set up, you're familiar with a force provider, but kind of a city. And it kind of started from scratch. It was a mud hole and built our own little logistic city that could now help those uh, Ford operating bases that are scattered all over get the supplies they need so they could focus on combat operations. It just it's I don't know if everybody can grasp the net and how wide it is of everything that you were over at that point in time and, and everything that was going on. Uh, if people just think back to what they saw on the news as we entered Afghanistan and uh, – as a, as a logistician myself, people forget the people who are providing all the, the trigger pullers with all the stuff that they need. But um, I, I just look at it and, and I, I marvel at how much you had command over at that point in time and how successful you were able to make us uh, at the outset of, uh, honestly, it was something that we're still fighting 15, 16 years later. So um, that's just, it's, it's incredibly impressive to uh, to hear about as you go through it. Yeah, it is all about team and getting every player, every person out there has a role to contribute to that success. And when I took over Mitnick, and I didn't even know what Mitnick was, you know, really, because it was Transportation Command, and we had to move eight of ten divisions in and out of one seaport in a 90-day period during the surge for OIF, I'm sorry, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. That was, it, it was like orchestrating the, you know, a dance. The ships come in, they had to get filled up. They got Now that was exciting. And, but you had to get every person from the wash rack people to the customs people to this whole, you know, sync matrix, as you know, which is just coordinate every aspect of the movement. And they, and I say they, they and we as a joint force, an army force, were successful because everyone understood how important their role was. And you didn't read a thing about it because nothing was late. And you can imagine if we weren't able to meet the president timeline that you'd be reading about. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's Look, exciting stuff. So when did you get promoted to general and what was that like? Because that was obviously must have been a, an incredible experience just to, yeah. you know, say, wow. I mean, you're selecting me yeah. for general. Yeah. Oh, Mark, I was just I, I still go, wow. And that was back in uh, 2008 when I was nominated for my four-star. And even though I had had so many firsts throughout my career, first this, first company commander, first bidet, blah, 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 I was never prepared for the enormity of this first. And, and when I say that, when the nomination hit, I had 
duffel bags full of mail and emails. My computer is going ding, ding, from people, men, women, daughters, sons, veterans, people all over the world just saying that they were so happy that this moment had finally come. And I remember getting a, a, a note from a Sergeant First Class Reservist who worked with me at Bragg in our warfighter exercise, and he said, General Dunwoody, I am so proud I can now tell my daughters they can be anything they want to be to include a four-star general in the United States Army. And, you know, I still get goosebumps. I get I just got goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's incredible. Yeah. Did you ever, at, I mean, did, can you remember in that moment, were you, like, almost moved to tears? Were you... When you find out, I, I just, I, I've never experienced anything like that, so I'm kind of trying to find the right words, but <laughs> you, when you get yeah. the, is it an email? Did somebody pick up the phone and call you? Did someone walk in your office? How did it go down? Um, well, I knew, um, because the chief staff had told me that I had been nominated, but when it was released, as it is, that, the, you know, it comes through emails and all that, that my nomination had been forwarded to the president, that's when all the emails and the and the letters and veterans send me their memoirs and and they were so it was exciting you'll think about this that no matter where they were from early veterans women they were so proud to have been part of this journey and I would have never have been where I was without what they did in their own time and so if you look at it as a journey that everyone contributed to along the way, and now there's women doing even bigger and greater things that you and I can't even imagine, right? It's it's exciting, and um, I don't. I know trying to get through that speech with my dad, who was then 90 years old in the audience, uh, was one of the hardest things I ever did. <laughs> I do have to ask you a, a semi-personal question because I'm just wondering in all this. I mean, you, you managed to get married, and you've done all this in your career. When did you find time to have all that happen? <laughs> well, I was, uh, and I talk about this, one of the harder things in my book is I got married, uh, my first marriage, uh, to uh, my high school sweetheart who went to University of Texas and then to West Point, and then we got married after that, and he was a just it wasn't meant to be, um, and it was unfortunate. He didn't want to have kids. I'm thinking, boy, you married a Catholic girl and you don't want to have kids. Where's that going? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't mind following around, but I wasn't going to follow around and not have a family too. And that, you know, when you think about growing up, you think about you know, your fence, your kids, you know, just like with my family. But so we ended up you know, separating and divorcing. And then I met my current, uh, almost 10 years later, at CGSC. And uh, he had two kids from his first marriage, and they were beyond the the kids' stage. They're now in, in junior, junior high and high school. And now we have four beautiful grandkids. We've been married going on 28 years. Wow. And, you know, I pe- the debate people have about can women have it all, and... I just tell them, don't let society define what having it all means. Because if you let them define it, it's, you know, the perfect marriage, successful husband, successful wife, great careers, two and a half kids, one's the king of the football team, one's the queen of the prom, you know, all that good stuff. But, you know, I never had my own kids. I thought I would. But it wasn't meant to be for whatever reason. And I'm not sure I could have done what I did, but I'll never know. 
I won't say I can't do it because I know friends that have, but I also don't know that I would or could have done it. But I feel like I've had it all and blessings galore with a beautiful husband, family, and four wonderful grandkids now. You know, you can't go through nearly 40 years uh, in the military, nearly 40 years of anything, uh, without having some bad stuff happen along the way. And because you reached the level that you did in the military, obviously you have a, a, a variety of viewpoints on what has gone on with sexual assault and sexual violence in the military and the Army specifically, uh, because it, it is something that has broken down our organization in some of the worst places at the worst times. When you were going through your career, did you ever have anything like that happen to you? How did you handle it, and and what did it do for you later on as a leader? I think, um, fortunately, because I came from a values-based family, I was an officer, I knew right from wrong, that when I saw these kinds of misbehaviors, that I could deal with them uh, in a way... uh, from a leadership perspective or reporting if necessary, then many of our junior enlisted or young enlisted troops who may not have grown up in the same environment, uh, knowing what right looks like, they're looking for their drill sergeant to show them or tell them. So I I had incidents where even as lieutenant colonel, where a colonel would be whistling that, you know, and I'm like, I'd just walk right up and correct them. And then I this at the War College, and then I'd go report it to the, the dean, and you just, you can't tolerate that. It's not tolerant. That's, that goes back to you never walk by a mistake. And the 82nd was the Jodies and the catcalls, which took a while to, to clean up, but it was just, it was just the culture, you know. And if you go back and look on the, surf the web on some of those catcalls, Jody calls they had way back before yeah. women started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there <was> nothing, <laughs> nothing to be proud about there, but... It, some of it's changing the culture and the attitude, but it's no tolerance for that. And when I see, you know, sexual assault, one is too many. You know, it's like suicide, one is too many. And we as leaders have got to take it seriously and hold people accountable for their action. And if we don't, and it, it, it hurts you and me, especially when you see senior leaders violate that conduct, it's like a kick in the gut to the institution yeah. because you know they should know better and they should be the role models, and now they let not only their soldiers down but the institution down. Has the Army done enough along the way to stop it, or have they run into too many of the same mistakes over and over again? You know, it's a great question. It's a tough question. Um I don't think it's something that's like a sine wave that, okay, we have this program this year and this program. It's some, it's constant. It's vigilance. It's got to be part of our karma. And it's not this is the program of the month. It's this is not acceptable way. We all wear this uniform, and this is not how soldiers treat soldiers who wear that uniform. And it's got to be as serious as any other offense of whether it was the old days of prejudice and name-calling, it's got to be regarded that serious and not taken lightly that it's dismissed. And I think, you know, I went and testified when they wanted to take that authority away from our commanders Mm -hmm. uh, to take sexual assault. I don't believe that. I believe commanders should be held responsible and accountable for their command climate 
We trust them to train them, him and her, to train our sons and daughters and take them to war, but we don't trust them to have a safe command climate where their sons and daughters can train safely. There's, that's incongruent to me. And the easiest thing to do is to relieve a commander for cause. Easiest thing. Command is a privilege. And so you deserve that privilege or you don't. And if you don't treat everyone equally with dignity and respect and you tolerate this unacceptable behavior, then you don't deserve the privilege of commanding our soldiers. And what the general is talking about for those who aren't military, when you get command, it, it is the most awesome thing in the world because you have so much responsibility. I mean, when you talk about waving a magic wand, in most cases, commanders can wave a magic wand and within you know the rules of the military do what they want to do, but they're also responsible for the things that don't happen. And the military, when they were... You know, and they're still dealing with sexual assault issues, obviously, but there was a time when they were going to take the ability to punish away from commanders. And that's one of the jobs that commanders have to be able to levy punishment against soldiers within their unit. Um, And it goes all the way up to, you know, different levels from a company to a battalion to a brigade, so on and so forth. And so the military was toying with the notion of doing of getting rid of commanders ability to punish and putting an independent uh, panel there, an independent uh, investigation because sometimes people felt like commanders were being swayed because, yes, it might have been a guy that they had known for 15, 20 years who committed the sexual assault and they didn't want to punish him and they didn't want to end their career that way and they, they take it lightly, so they became conflict of interest, which was the reason why they wanted to pull that away from commanders. I do agree with you, though, from the standpoint of you, you can't ask them to do all these things to get young men and women ready to go to war and then with this particular issue yank that responsibility away from them if they're not willing to lay their career on the line and do the right thing then they shouldn't be able to lay their life on the line and do the right thing right i mean to to imagine that now i'm the commander and that's been taken away and so i had an incident and oh i don't worry about that because the lawyers got that one really Tough, no. T- very, 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 t- very, very tough. Um, yeah. Has the military done enough now to make sure that women have every opportunity possible? To mean to serve to what it was every possible to do what? Well, I mean, now that we've opened up branches in, in the Army for women, combat arms. Women can enter right. combat arms branches right. now, and they weren't able to do that before. Um, yeah. But do you feel like that something like that has taken too long? Uh, no, I think it, everything's, you know, if you look back on our careers and what we've seen, and I've seen more than you, but the integration of blacks, the integration of women, the integration of gays, the integrate, you know, it's now women in combat. Nothing happens overnight. And I think this time they did a very methodical assessment, and I believed in what they were doing. It took them time to do that. But just what are the requirements for each one of these uh, skill sets and, and what are they? Because a lot of them are pejorative. I mean, run four miles in eighty second and thirty six minutes. Well, I don't know where that came from, but it made me proud because it made it different from the mother divisions. Or a twelve mile rucksack with thirty five pound ruck. We had to do that and made us different. But I don't know where that requirement came from. And so when they started drilling down, and I think they really did a great job from being, you know, a field artillery, cannon, ammunition, to what the strength requirements are, what you had to do to be able to fulfill that, that that was the right approach because you take out the emotion. Now it becomes here's the standards 
for this MOS. And if you want to do this job, here's the standards you have to, to meet. And I think we really didn't know what all those were until we did that homework. And then I think the Army in particular, I give great kudos by opening the Ranger School and uh, giving it, I think they set these women up for success. And I've met all three of these uh, graduates now, and I'm so proud of them. I was like, my gosh, I I know I couldn't have done it, and I'm so proud that they did do it. But I think, you know, you can make it too hard so they set up for failure, or you can make it too easy so that people go, oh, yeah, well, they just lightened up the standards. What we can't do is lower the standards in order to accommodate women into these career fields. We cannot lower the standards. We have to know what the standard is, and then we have to uphold that standard. It's a dangerous profession we're in, and we can't afford not to have people fulfilling those roles that can't meet the standards required to accomplish the most. How did you know your career was over? I mean, I guess it's easier for you since you achieved the highest rank there is, so you kind of reached the end of the line, but how did you know that uh, that you were done serving? Nope. Well, it's interesting because they, they always want more, and I had other opportunities, and um, you're going through my book chapter by chapter. I hope you know this. Well, <laughs> while, we're, while we're here, because you've mentioned it several times, the, the, the title of the book, for everybody to know, A Higher Standard Leadership Strategies from America's First Female Four-Star General, obviously written by yourself um, you know, and co-authored as well. But I just wanted to give everybody, since we've talked about it, I want to give you an opportunity, but it is called A Higher Standard. But tell me why you, uh, yeah. you decided to call it quits. Well, when I was uh, at, at about, let's see, um, as a, my, I started having some back issues. I had to have seven spinal epidurals in my back from maybe jumping so much. I had uh, a, a broken wrist. I had nine screws and a plate from running in the dark at Old Dark 30 at Belvoir, and I tripped on the pavement and smashed my wrist. And then, and then I broke my ankle climbing Cocoa Head in Hawaii, and, and I hadn't seen my granddaughter. My husband went out all the time because he was retired, but I hadn't seen my grandmother. My dad was getting old. You know, he's 90. My, my family had been carrying a load there. And so after my first four-star assignment, when they suggested another, I said, you know, I'm, I want to be healthy enough <laughs> when I do retire to be able to enjoy retirement and see my grandkids and take care of my dad. I had already lost my mother. And so it was, it, I think people know you know, when their time is. Some don't. And this is in the chapter, it's called, you know, leaving on your own terms, uh, but not, not you know, I don't understand Army requirements, you know, not, not discarding Army requirements, but leaving on your own terms. Because a lot of people, I think, uh, I've seen hang around and, and leave bitter instead of, you know, no, I thought I was going to retire as a two-star, quite frankly, uh, when I had finished my two-star assignment, and you watched what the leaves are moving and who's filling allegedly things or this or that, and I didn't see my name coming up. And I told my husband, let's go, we'll go buy a place in Hawaii and get our foot in the door there, and we'll probably look at, you know, at least spending some time there. It'd be nice and warm after Fort Drum. And then the players changed, and new chief of staff, and then all of a sudden my, those slots that were filled by other people, my name was back up. So you, you don't know, and you just you, you stay while you can make a difference, 
and I think the best thing is, you know, when you've decided that you've made a difference and that you've built this bench behind you. Uh, and when people say who should replace you and you don't have a name, then shame on you. We should have like five names <laughs> that you have groomed and developed that could take over our positions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I felt we had a great bench now in the logistics community of two and three stars and one stars, and the bench was deep and it was diverse. And now it's time for me to ride off in the sunset and let some of these young horses jump on in. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, listen, I, I I don't know when the end is. Uh, I think it's different for everybody, but, I mean, it is. as long as you can go out on your own terms, I, I think that's the most important thing. And I, I think you just kind of hit on an important lesson for everybody out there. You know, just when you think you're about to give up and should give up, you hang on a little bit longer, something breaks your way. That's ultimately fortuitous. And other, without you hanging on as a two-star, obviously you never make it to four-star. So um, you look back at 37-plus years, again, nearly four decades. What do you take away the most from your time in the military? Um, the thing I think is the most important for all of us, and I feel the most proud of, it takes a lot of work, and I hope is my legacy is the leaders that you touched and you developed. How many times you jumped out of airplanes, it's not how many loads you rigged or how many gallons of fuel or miles you ran. It's, and today still, when these your aides or your XOs are still checking in and calling and you're watching them all become the lieutenants that were Fort Bragg with me or all brigade commanders, that's to me is the most rewarding uh, that you take time out and you help professionally develop and grow and that doesn't always mean people get to do the assignments they want to do, the fun things. You know, I spent six years in the 82nd. I loved it. But was that the best use of my time? Because after a while, it's just fun. I'm not going to learn as much as I've been thrown into AMC or DL, one of those other commands. So you realize that you want to develop these leaders with the largest portfolios that gives them the opportunity to be compete, competing or competitive at the next level throughout the career. So I think that's the most important thing we have is is uh, developing leaders and transitioning your organization uh, to the next person. And AMC, for those listening, non-military Army Materiel Command, just the, it's the highest level of, of the supply industry, so to speak, in the military. Uh, tell everybody where they can get the book. Uh, Amazon.com, uh, think, or and Dunwoody, www.andunwoody.com. Yeah. <laughs> all good and uh it still has a five-star rating thanks to all of you <laughs> well i wouldn't expect any less for the first female four-star general of the army so uh, final thoughts real quick you know your legacy you know as the first female four-star general um how do you put that in, in personal context um you know i I'm standing here in my office right now, and I'm surrounded by pictures and images and awards and people throughout my entire career from every assignment that I ever had, jumping into Normandy for the 82nd, 50th anniversary. And you just go, how blessed was I to have been able to serve in this noble profession and, you know, had such a wonderful outcome and met so many wonderful people along the way. Well, ma'am, listen, I, I thank you so much. Uh, obviously, you know, everybody listening, thanks you for your service to our nation. But I personally thank you for making our Army better. Uh, it's, it's without people like you that, 
Uh, the the current military isn't what it is today. And sure, we've hit some bumps in the road along the way. I think every organization has been around 200 plus years, obviously would. But <laughs> with, without leaders like yourself, uh, we're not able to do the things that we do today. And, uh, you know, a personal thank you from me, but I, I speak for uh, all the people listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, just uh, gratitude to the max, and, and we appreciate everything that you've done and certainly appreciate your time. Well, thank you for making a difference and continuing to serve because I'm very proud of you as well. It's not easy these days. All right. Thank you, ma'am. All righty. Take care. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, Send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.